listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Hello. Hello. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast, and this is our very special Radiothon edition. It is, we kicked off Radiothon today. Um, and so if you're listening to this podcast, you could be listening to it at any point in time. But this is just a little reminder that this is the time of the year then we, when we ask you, the good listeners out there, to subscribe to Triple R and support what we do. Please do. Rrr.org.au mm. is where you can go to do that. Uh, because this is some of the great content that you get for free on the airwaves most of the time. Uh, this week we spoke to Tim Costello about his new book, A Lot with a Little. It was a really great chat. We also had a bit of a chat about uh, the origin stories of each one of our jackets that we own that is very special to us. Special yeah. to us. Uh, also, um, we got to chat to Omar Musha since Ali died is his uh, one-man show that is happening uh, at the Art Centre. Uh, and Dr Jen, our favourite Dr Jen uh, for Weird Science, um, Talk to us about early birds and night owls. And what are you? Imagine a, imagine a world without weird science. It'd be so sad. It's one of the most popular segments and rightly so. Absolutely. Uh, we also chatted school camps and follicle fires and poo wong. I guess you had to, uh, you'll have to listen to make sense of that. Uh, Alicia Sometimes, former breakfaster, came in to talk about her show Particle Wave, which is occurring at planetariums around the country and, uh, and it's part of National Science Week. And for uh, our first Radiothon show, we chatted to Henry Waggons, and boy, that was fun. Always a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, as we said, it is Radiothon time. Listen to this podcast, enjoy it, lap it up, then jump on your computer and subscribe. Three Triple R. Reverend Tim Costello is one of Australia's leading voices on social justice and global poverty. For 13 years, he was CEO of World Vision Australia, the country's largest overseas aid charity. He's been minister at Collins Street Baptist Church in in St Kilda, where he also served a period as mayor. In 2004, he was named Victorian of the Year. In 2005, he was made an officer of the Order of Australia, and he's also one of Australia's 100 National Living Treasures. His new memoir, A Lot With A Little, is out now, and he joins us this morning. Tim Costello, welcome to Breakfasters. Great to be with you. Thanks for that introduction. Pretty much as I wrote it, really. <laughs> uh, you describe in the book your father's omnipresence, which is usually a word reserved for God. Uh, <laughs> can you describe how you see his role in your trajectory? Yeah, my mum, who's still alive at 90, said, uh, after reading the book, I hadn't realised how much your father is still in your head. And um, for those listeners who've ever seen the British series 7 Up, 14 Up, we're up to 63 Up. Uh, kids from orphanages, from aristocratic families. M- amazing at 63, at my age, they look back at the uh, footage uh, when they were 7 and they say... I'm still the same person. Mm. Show me a child till the age of seven and I'll show you the man. It was testing that idea. So the memoir is really uh, about my parents um, and the shaping of uh, my life by virtue of things that were subliminal, that what happens to you in families is so normal, so invisible, you you rarely question it. It's why things like child abuse are so devastating because it's an uncle, it's in a family, you don't know it's wrong. Um, thankfully, that's not my story. My story was uh, parents who... Uh, loved me, but uh, did have different backgrounds. Dad, working class, 
Labor voting family mum, liberal voting, aspirational, um, and uh, maybe mum who loved dad. The marriage worked, it lasted 63 years, did project a lot of her frustrated ambition because dad was never a climber. He just wanted to be a teacher all his life. Very humble, humble man, which is why I respect him so much. Mum probably did project it onto her sons much more than my my sister mm. so uh you start to look back and try and put the pieces together uh that's that's what this book's about mm. at the very start of the book you there's kind of a little disclosure in which you say the nature of a book like this you have to keep a little bit private mm. but when i read it it didn't feel like you did keep a lot <laughs> private to be honest you're quite kind of forthcoming about your relationship with your parents uh and and how that still affects you today how did you feel and how did you navigate what to keep private and how did you feel when you did give it to your mum for the first time to read? Was there anything that she said back to you that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I work with this on my mum. So Dad died um, three years ago at 97 and um, it was like a towering tree. A cedar of Lebanon, I described him, as that had given shelter and protection was gone. And even at 60, I felt an orphan. It's quite amazing how mm. powerful his influence had been. I think that's true for my brother and my sister. And so the emotion post the funeral, uh, I then started writing and work with mum on it and had permission, her permission, to say those things, including permission from my kids because there's some personal things about them. Um, look, I say that uh, a, a memoir is a relative of truth. It's not the twin of truth. <laughs> in other words, memories are always contested mm. and uh, you can sit with the same family and there's different ages, therefore they remember very different phases of a family life and they can get angry that this is not the same family you're describing. Um, but there still are some, um, you know, there's the public Tim Costello, I reveal the private Tim Costello, I do say. There's a personal Tim Costello, some things I don't feel obligated to share because uh, who then am I if you sh shared absolutely everything? Yeah. Your, uh, your mother uh, started a book group at age 89, it seems. <laughs> but maybe the memoir can be the next on the list. <laughs> uh, and she's an interesting character. There was something darkly kind of funny that uh, her auntie told her at one point in her life uh, when she was ill. Do you remember? Yeah. She, my, so my mum uh, was expected to die. She was in hospital for two years during university years missing out in the university and back then the 1940s a woman getting to university was a big achievement uh, she was greatly comforted when an aunt said don't worry Anne only the good die young uh, that gave her great comfort <laughs> she knew she wasn't good <laughs> uh, and the book is dedicated to your first grandchild um, and there are characters in the book that uh, she she won't ever know but looking back at your family's history it tells a lot about the history of melbourne as well mm. doesn't it um there's costello lane in north melbourne there is uh, so my great-grandfather arrived in 1841 now this is why the book um was great to write we did not know of patrick costello um he uh, ran pubs in Swanston Street and Carlton. He had a magnificent pre-1850s home in um, uh, Carlton, one of the four only pre-1850 homes existing. But we didn't know about him. 
Why? Because he had rigged his election to colonial parliament. He was tried by Redmond Barry. He was sent to prison. Um, and it was a huge shame and therefore silence in the family. Um, he did come back as mayor of North Melbourne. There's a Costello Lane there. But when I discovered all of this and wrote it up a few years ago... Uh, my brother in politics wasn't thrilled with this uh, family history. He got taunted in question time about Costello's always been criminals. Um, but uh, he, he was there in 1841, so Melbourne was only six years old. Mm. And uh, in this book, uh, when you write a family history, you actually realise you've been to places before you're even born, that you actually occupy a story, indwell a story that uh, has shaped you. Uh, so when I dedicate it to my grand- only grandchild, I'm really saying um, you won't know these people, but this is actually part of your story. Mm. Uh, thinking you're obviously very self-reflective by nature and in the memoir as well, reflecting on what makes a good life, uh, do you have any sense of what... Um, the nature of tribe is, of community, uh, what role does that play or should it play for Australians that maybe you observe as lacking? Yeah, I write in the book that the uh, dangerous times we're in I describe as retribalising. We're turning inwards, I think, the old gods that never went away. And I use the word gods deliberately because um, they have power over us. The old gods are the gods of uh, race or blood, blood that leads to racism and soil that leads to hyper-nationalism. And uh, in retribalizing, make America great, make Russia great, uh, China is going to dominate, uh, tearing up international rules, um, which really are pretty important for a little power like Australia. We're going to get caught in the middle. We're getting caught in the middle because we depend on international rules of fairness. Uh, but uh, this, these are very deep personal psychological forces. Um, I reflect uh, that we actually do need a tribe. We know that uh, when we're vulnerable, when we're alone, uh, we want people who get us. When we tell a joke, we want people who get us. We actually have a strong need for, for bonding. It uh, was why the motto in my first church, St Kilda, and it stayed with me, was committed at the core and open at the edges. You do need a core. You need a sense of who my people are. But it can't be exclusive. It's got to be open. It's got to be invitational. So there's quite a, a bit in how we how we balance the need for a tribe and yet tribalisation that leads to war and leads to bad nasties. Speaking of St Kilda, I mean, you dedicate a, a bit of the book to talking about that when you first moved there and you kind of turned down this plum job in the leafy eastern suburbs to go to a parish in St Kilda and set up shop there. And I was really struck how honest you were about your naivety when you first moved to St Kilda and what you encountered there. Could you talk a little bit about how, how that move transformed who you are today? Well, this is the pre-gentrified St Kilda. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so um, the uh, Will Bar- Barrow and Elephant, a nice pub there, was a strip joint. And, uh, the uh, well, the block is now just doing up one of the... what was the black hole of Calcutta when I was there. We were v- working with people who were mentally ill, shooting up heroin, sex workers, runaway kids in... So many of the boarding houses, the Regal and those that line Fitzroy Street. 
Um, so, yeah, for me, it was this sense that if my faith is real, it's got to be big enough to include people who um, uh, we prefer to edit out of our lives because they're disordered, they're chaotic, they're sometimes criminal. Um, can faith actually give hope and build community and transform lives? Um why I say faith is I've never bought the secular notion, though there's some truth in it, that it's just bad conditions that make bad people and good conditions will make good people. I know a lot of people who grew up in really good conditions who are really greedy and malevolent and cruel, mm. but uh, the transformation needs to be personal. It needs to be that heart as well as the community of goods and love and acceptance that... Uh, pushes you when when you build that community you can speak into a person's life about their drinking their violence their uh, drug addiction only in relationship do you have the respect from them mm. for them to listen to say there may be another way so i was very naive about how tough this would be when i set up shop in st kilda i'm glad to say over 10 years there we we did build that sort of community it continues today um, I was there yesterday in church where a, a transgender woman told her story of acceptance and love uh, and how it had transformed her life. We were all in tears listening to it, um, that she found acceptance and, and belonging. Uh, so um, I was naive, but uh, I'm glad that uh, I, I went to St Kilda. And then not long after this, your approach to become a senator... Hmm. Uh, what what sort of ruptures or what happened after that? So I thought politics would be uh, the next step for me after being mayor of St Kilda. I thought, yeah, I'm I'm okay at this, and uh, there's the plum offer, Cheryl Kerno. Uh, a casual vacancy, a senator Sid Spindler standing down for me. I thought, here I go. Um, before I talked to my brother or my parents, uh, it was leaked to the Australian and there was a front page, Peter Costello, big brother is going to be watching you. Uh, this didn't help family relations. Um, and it would have been the first time you had brothers in the same parliament in different parties. It's never happened in Australian politics. So it was clearly stretching the elastic of family relations. Uh, for a whole host of reasons I describe in the book, I, uh, I withdrew. I yeah. didn't go ahead. Uh, and uh, I always say, look, politics has been my constant temptation, but it's not my vocation. And through all your work with World Vision, you're not a million miles away from musicians, are you? You've got uh, Bono uh, and, you know, thinking of also the Dalai Lama, not that he's a musician, you've crossed paths with him, him but also Bon Scott. Mm. Yeah, that was really interesting. In my uh, full-on evangelical days, I was 19, I was at a uh, ACDC concert and um, I don't know what it was in me, but I just felt... <laughs> that I wanted to line up uh, to talk to Bon Scott. I was on the end of a, a line of about 200 girls. <laughs> he must have been excited uh, to see you. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, just what he needed. Uh, we had a good chat, but uh, he said, look, mate, I'm happy. I was saying, you know, you're really happy. I, I did sense, I think, even back then, something in him that troubled him troubled me and you um, thought you had all the answers i did i had yeah. all the answers <laughs> look he said i've got my whiskey i've got my drugs look at this line of girls yeah mate i'm fine but uh, two years later he died yeah. and um i do i did tell that story in the book because uh, i think we're all frail humans <coughs> 
trying to get by. Um, and even when we think we've got it all together, um, the sense of fragility is is lurking. That shadow is still lurking. I, when you, you describe yourself as that you became part of the global elite, a global elite, a cosmopolitan internationalist, part of the professional knowledge class, it sounds like a Trump rally uh, against <laughs> the enemies. Um, what, do you, what do you think of that, uh, you know, and it, it goes back to studying at Monash for free, I guess, in the 70s. Yeah. And, um, what, what do you think of the, the, that role or your role in... Uh, in public life and uh, the reaction to, as we say, you know, cosmopolitan internationalists. Yeah, I, I do think that the uh, retribalizing is a uh, backlash to globalization, which seemed to enrich the uh, knowledge class globally and uh, a whole heap of people who are stuck in, say, postcodes that were struggling where there are only uh, very limited jobs, they weren't knowledge class, started to rightly resent. Uh, I think Trump picked up that pain better than any other candidate uh, when he ran for um, election. What did he do with that pain? He said, I'll tell you why you and the Rust Belt are in pain. It's Mexicans, we're building a wall. Mm. It's Chinese, we're going to have a trade war. It's Muslims, we're going to ban them. It's blacks in America. When you connect people's pain to a scapegoat, we know where this ends in history. We know how dangerous this is. But in describing myself as that cosmopolitan, I was saying uh, there is a sense in which I've actually, with... Uh, my university degrees and skills lived a very blessed life even though I've gone to every disaster in the last 15 years and seen the rawness and tried to respond there still is with me a sense of profound agency I I can choose my destiny Mm. Um, and there's lots of others who feel they can't and I understand the backlash and just finally uh your years with World Vision, it's easy to imagine uh, life post that compared to all the, the horrors that you've seen. But is there anything about it that you sincerely miss? Yeah, the the rawness of uh, the work in the field. Um, this sounds puzzling, but um, I was never more alive when I was there in the field, even if it was a disaster, because you see people literally in the worst circumstances surprising you by finding the hope to rebuild. Often it comes from their faith. They have no other resource but faith other than uh, I still believe Allah, God, however they understand, wants me to get up and rebuild and go on. And uh, you come back to Australia where uh, we've solved the problem of supply, like how many mobile phones do we need or widescreen digital TVs, and we've got epidemics of depression and uh, youth suicide levels that are high. Uh, whereas in the field you see connection to land, to elders, to dance, to story, to community. Um, and that, that rawness uh, at times was also matched by richness. Richness that actually the point of life is not uh, what your bank balance is, it's your relationships, mm. it's your giving back in community. That's, that's certainly part of what I miss. Well, the book is A Lot With A Little uh, by Tim Costello, uh, who's uh, been speaking with us this morning. Thank you so very much. That's a pleasure. Three, triple, ah.
happened a few weeks ago, but we did our photo shoot for Radiothon that's oh, yeah. coming up. Oh, yeah. Got to go down and play some arcade video games, play a bit of pinball. We all got dressed up. Can't, yeah. Well. We wore a, a well, yeah, I wore matching. a jacket that I wear a lot, but it was fun on jackets brand. on brand. Yeah, yeah in theme. on brand. Yeah, you I had, just looked naturally dressed up. And, yeah, uh, yeah, but you had an on brand jacket. It on was as on well. brand, but again, yeah, it's it's in it's in rotation in the wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, and I wore um, an on brand jacket as well. <laughs> your your jacket was the star of the show. Thank you. Do you want to hear the origin story of that jacket? I would like to. For those that don't know, could you describe the jacket? It's a parachute top, um, very bright. Uh, Pink, purple. Like a a pink and orange and purple number. Like, um, yeah, orange orange and purple. Yeah, Yeah. parachute. It's like what the the cool mum wore in 1984. Um, (laughs) So... uh, you make noises when you walk in it. Yeah. <laughs> so I um I found that jacket when I was in Edinburgh, uh, in the vintage section of a top shop. Oh. Mm, they had yeah. I love that section. Have you been to it? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So I found it. <laughs> Not specifically the one you went to. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, I found this jacket one day when I was in Edinburgh. I was there five years ago, um, and I was. Uh, this is during Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I wasn't actually doing a show. I was there on holidays and ended up um, like was one of those overseas trips that you do when you're like you. Your twenties or whatever, where you can't really afford to be going overseas, yeah. but you go anyway. The best kind. Why not? Shoulder <laughs> some extra debt. Yeah, I. But when I got to Edinburgh, I was like, I felt safe in Edinburgh because I knew that I had so many friends there, and I'm like, I'll find a couch to sleep on. It'll be fine. And I did. I ended up staying in this mansion. There's a few other comics because they were like, oh, yeah, somehow we've managed to stumble on this Airbnb mansion. So um, come stay. You can just sleep on the couch in the lounge room. And, like, the couch in the lounge room, it was, like, the biggest couch, like, big leather, nice leather couch in a massive lounge room. This oh, is the size wow. of, like, all these three studios put together. Mm. Massive. Um, so I ended up staying there. I was like, oh, well, I'll just hang out. And... Um, I anyway found this found this parachute top. I was like, I can't afford to buy this. is This is silly. I'm, I'll leave it. And then um, went. Well, actually, if I do flying for like three hours tomorrow for other people, because I'll get paid like ten quid an hour or whatever. I'm like, if I do that for a few people, then I can afford to buy this this jacket. It just looks like a cool jacket, right? So I um, I did that. I went and flyed, and I went back to the store with my mate. But it was gone, no. and I was like, "Oh man, I really wanted it." Now you know when you, you know when you make a decision to, yeah. you go, "No, I've thought about this. I'm not buying it on a whim." I've Once thought it's been about snatched it. away, oh. yeah. you, didn't, you didn't hide it on the rack. No, 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 because it was days Classic, late. I love the rack yeah. hide. <laughs> so, and I was about to, and I was like, oh, Steph, I'm like, oh, I can't believe it's gone. I was about to walk out. And then my friend went, hang on a second. And then she went to the change rooms and she came out with it. So <gasps> someone else had tried it on and left I it in the change it. Oh, like, oh, Genius. happy days, right? So, so first, you know, so it's, that's happened. I'm like, oh, this jacket is magic. Also, what a great 
I just I love a reinforcement of a choice because I'm so bad at making them. Oh, yes. So for me, that would be the ultimate reinforcement, like the panic I felt when I thought it was gone and yeah. then to have it materialise. And then it's there and it's yeah. like, yeah, this is, you're making the right decision totally. on this. I mean, you probably won't afford to eat tonight, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. get this jacket, do it. So I bought it and it was great and I took a photo and put it up on Facebook and Instagram. People have got lots of likes. We were like, oh, great words, a great jacket. And then um, that night I was out um, and it was like my last – one of my last nights in Edinburgh. <clears throat> and so I was out um, at one of the bars with, um, with some friends and it was like this – at the Gilded Balloon they have like an artist bar. So just – so I was upstairs in – have you ever been to Edinburgh? Do you know about yeah. this? Yeah. So they have this rooftop bar and I was sitting up there uh, with some mates and then this woman <laughs> comes over. She said she was from Glasgow and she said, hey, I really like your top. And I was like, oh, thanks, mate. Yeah, I got it today. It's really, you know, cool. And she goes, yeah, I'll fight you for it. And I went, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I just thought she was, you know, there was a bit of a joke, you know, because was, she was like, you know, anyway, she was like, yeah, I'll fight you for it. I'm like, That's oh, why you just love a fight. Yeah. <laughs> but I just thought we'd had a few beers and, you know, like men do, they go, oh, yeah, fight and then have a bit of a fun wrestle, right? So I get up thinking this is what she was, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'll fight. Like I'm pretending to have a fight. Like I'm putting my fists up, making the boxing stance and just going, yeah. And then she punched me in the ribs and then no. she punched me in the ribs again and I was like oh that's you're getting a bit rough. oh my god and then she punched me in the mouth <laughs> I was like oh oh that really I'm like all right I'm out <laughs> stop swearing <laughs> So much shocked by this situation, mate. It, I got punched in the face. I was very shocked. I was, I'm, I'm like, oh, my lips bleeding. <clears throat> and then I sat down, and because I'm with all my friends, that I kind of sit down, like, whoa, what's everything? I just kind of, you know, was immediately protected by everybody else. And I'm still not kind of I haven't really caught up on the situation. I'm like, like an like, Austin Powers movie. Or something. <laughs> I don't know what. I, I don't know either. And then because then she's like, you have to give me the jacket now. I'm like, <laughs> you signed up. Yeah. 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 I was yeah like, I'll vote for she it. goes, oh, I won the fight, so you have to give me oh the jacket. Oh my god. Oh my like, god. No, nah, giving you my jacket. Um, and then. Um, and then I think she just kind of gave up and left because there were so many of us. How often does that work for her? Well, I mean, she had clothes on, so who knows? Maybe <laughs> she's been fighting all night. All the time. All the time. Dressed. And then, but then my friend goes, who's sitting there, and they're like, what just happened? I'm like, I don't know. And then my friend goes, no, she hit you because she likes you. And I was like, what? She goes, that's her way of flirting. Like she wanted to – I was like, I, I, my lip's bleeding. I don't think <laughs> that she, she wants to get any – no, no more <laughs> bleeding anyway. I've, oh. I've, I've been offered for my very same jacket in the same photo. Someone offered me $500. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why didn't you sell it? Oh, because it's it's Cause meaningful and sentimental. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. oh, it's a great jacket. Yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's five hundred is just a lot of money. Yeah, every time I wear it, pretty much, someone says, "Where'd you get it? Can I have it?" Where, Where did, did you, you get, get it? It? <laughs> it was it was at it, Letterman. Oh, is it a Letterman jacket? Yeah, but oh. but in in the states they're called they're, that sort of jacket is actually called a Letterman jacket. Oh. And then when I was at Letterman, he gives jackets to. 
his staff. Oh, well, that's different. That's just not. That's, yeah, I can understand why someone would want to pay five hundred no, bucks for well, it. Well, they don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. They, they or they, some of them might know, but there are other staff because not every staff member gets got one. Oh, and wow. so there are other oh, staff that are like you. So wow, yeah, I don't know. That's a good why origin story. What's the origin story of your jacket? Well, I was in Japan. You know the origin <laughs> story of my jacket. Yeah, you went to. A- I was in Japan and I saw it on one side of Japan. And I went to buy it, and then I thought, no, I'm going to think about it. And then mm-hmm. when I went back, I decided to go. The only time that Japan closes down is over New Year's, and the store was closed. And I was spiralling because it's, ti- <laughs> it's a tiger jacket, and I decided that it was a lucky tiger jacket. Yeah. Anyway, travelled across Japan, found one on the other side of Japan, identical. Yeah. It cost a lot of money. I bought it, came back, wore it every single day game to the football for the year and then we won the grand final. Wow. Mm. What a special photograph. And this, then this these all these magic jackets. I can't believe it. And then did someone from Tokyo try to punch you in the face for it? <laughs> yes, they did. Three. Triple. Omar Musa is an award-winning author, rapper and spoken word poet whose debut novel Here Come the Dogs in 2014 was long-listed for the Miles Franklin Award. Now, after sold-out seasons in Sydney of his one-man show Since Ali Died, it's coming to the Art Centre, Fairfax Studio, and he joins us now. Omar, welcome to Breakfasters. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Since Ali Died was first an album, then adapted into a show, now it's touring. Uh, Did you expect to spend this much time with Muhammad Ali? Is, is the appreciation getting deeper or are you getting sick of each other now? Oh, no, it's getting deeper because people keep telling me their stories about how much he meant to them. And sort of everywhere you go around the world, when they hear that you've got a connection with Muhammad Ali, then, yeah, I mean, he, had, he was so universal in that way. But, I mean... It came together in such a haphazard way. I didn't expect to be still doing it now. <laughs> it was, uh, even though it's only been like a year and a half, but I was originally approached by Griffin Theatre Company to do a sort of one-man show, but I think they just kind of wanted me as part of this festival to do like an hour of spoken word. And I had written this album that had very loose narrative strands about friendship and love and a few vague references to Muhammad Ali and then, of course, like, you know, politics and race in Australia... And I I said, look, if you give me a director, I think we could bring these strands together in some way into a a one-man show, you know, add poetry, Mm. add storytelling, um, add a bit of Queanbeyan scallywaggery and, you know, (laughs) trash talk. And, yeah, and that's how it came about. But I didn't think it would resonate so much. I really didn't. I thought I'd just do it for a few days and then it would kind of die in the arse. Could Muhammad Ali exist in Australia? Is, Is there anything? Ooh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he could, you know. Because I think Australia is a fairly secular country and a lot of that sort of oratorical skill and that, and that um, yeah, well, it's almost like a religious ecstasy um, derives from, you know, countries that are a bit more based on the, on the church, and even though he was Muslim. Um, but it's for, like, like if an orator came up like that in parliament, I feel like we wouldn't trust him as Australians or mm-hmm. her, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it would seem sort of contrived and a little bit over the top. Uh, so I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah, right. And you like him because he's pretty. I like. He was the prettiest man there. <laughs> yeah. just a, the most luminous, golden man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And what is it? What is it? You mentioned Queen Bean. What is it about that place that looms so large for you? Well, that's where I'm from. You know, you've got to represent where you're from. And I think I sort of decided to own that from a young age because everyone would make fun of it. You know, it was one of those places. I, I don't know what the equivalent is here, but maybe like Frankston yeah. or yeah, something like that's that. Me. Yeah, you're yeah. Yeah, you're a Frankston boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Franger represents. <laughs> so, 
you know, like people would call it Struggle Town and this and that and make fun of it and say it was dug and not built. And I was like, no, 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 I'm from Queenview and I'm proud of it. And mm. and um, and I think also because from me, like, even, you know, this is a bit corny, but the, the motto of Queenview is city living, country benefits. <laughs> so it's like this, this in-between place. And I'm an in-between person, in-between, yeah. you know, secular Australian, being raised Muslim, Asian Australian, all that sort of stuff. And so I kind of used to think that Queanbeyan was like a microcosm for Australia, just part rural, part city, very multicultural. Uh, and so I've always been trying to, you know, describe Queanbeyan in my work, even in something like Here Come the Dogs, my novel. It was all about trying to encapsulate that because I thought it said something about Australia in general. Mm. How much do you think, I mean, Here Come the Dogs kind of was you in some ways kind of holding a bit of a mirror up to what felt like a place like Sydney at the time. How much do you think we've changed since you wrote that book? Oh, man, that's really, really difficult to say um, because I always think, you know, it's a shifting cultural battleground, so it's like two steps forward, one step back. You know, there are certain ways in which young people that I talk to are kind of more progressive and liberal and advanced than, like, maybe people of our age... um, uh, in just sort of a, a natural way when the demographics of a place change and, and there are more people sort of rubbing up against one another. But, um, but I think that a lot of the, 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 the simmering tensions that underlie Australian culture are, are still there and, and they're not dealt with. And something like Islamophobia, I would say, has got worse. I mean, when we see something like the Christchurch killer, I, I don't think we can say he's just an outlier. He's a product of you know, a culture of fear that's been slowly, slowly built over a long period of time, something that I grew up with and I've been affected by, you know. And so I would say he's just like the pointy end of a a blade that's been sharpening for a long time. Is there anything, looking as like you do at the gaps, um, and this show is, a you know, it's about Muhammad Ali, it springboards from there. Are there any flaws in him that that you grapple with or is he in unimportant? You're asking, the, you're asking the good questions, <laughs> yeah. man. I've been waiting for this That's one. That's his job. Yeah, I, uh, no, I've been waiting for this one I, because I feel like maybe if there... I shouldn't be saying this when I'm trying to promote the show, but if there is a flaw to the show, uh, besides, you know, the main performer of the, <laughs> the one the show, uh, it's, it's that Muhammad Ali was um, a flawed human being, you know? Like, there were times when he could be incredibly cruel. For instance, like the way he treated Joe Frazier and he would call him a gorilla and talk about how stupid he was and all this sort of stuff when Muhammad Ali was quite middle class compared to Joe Frazier who was actually from the hood and who was by all accounts a very very sweet honourable man and it really stung him through his whole life um, that Muhammad Ali would paint him as like the white people's um, black boxer you know Mm -hmm. whereas he was the champion of black people and that was a very cruel mean spirited side of Ali's personality and I, I do sort of think that like Maybe in the show I should have put some of that, you know, across because, yeah, he's not an unimpeachable hero. I mean, no one is. Mm. So you don't tackle that at all in the show? No, because we brought it together in about a week and a half of the most intensive sort of creative flurry with this lady, Anthea Williams, the uh, director. The director, yeah. Really brilliant. And it just came together and it, and it just seemed to hang together and work. And so there have been bits where I thought, oh, should I tweak that? Should I change it? If you so had thought, another no. week, what would yeah, what would change? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 the whole central image is really good. It's it's about me in a boat with Muhammad Ali on a river, 
and we're sailing down this dark river to somewhere we don't know or the audience doesn't know and I'm telling him the yarn of my life um, or a yarn about my life. And, um, and I think it sort of all hangs together really well but that, I think that one thing that you've sort of identified or um, brought out of me is, is something that I might have changed. What Before this show you weren't theatre trained. What, what has the immersion in this space taught you about art and performance? Oh, I've loved it. I mean, I come from a theatrical family. Yeah. You know, my dad was an actor in Malaysia, um, as well as a romance radio DJ. Really, really. Yeah, yeah. Love song dedications yeah, with your dad. Exactly. <laughs> he, uh, they, they called him the voice. You've, uh, you've got a very good voice. Is that your dad's voice? I th- his is time. nicer. His, <laughs> his is nicer. Yeah, yeah. I've always been very proud of my voice, but yeah, when I hear my dad, I'm like, oh, yeah. It's like, um, did you listen, man. or was it? Did he? Did, he, did you listen to his show or no no this was sort of like in the 70s yeah community radio in borneo yeah, so wow. i don't think there's any any tapes of it or anything like that but it was all based on his voice that he got a scholarship to go and study in the mainland in um in penang right. and uh it was there that a uh, white australian woman who was a head of drama at the university was putting on the first malaysian language version of hamlet and they were trying to audition for it they couldn't find the right guy until <laughs> Dad this guy along. walked in from, yeah, long-haired, mysterious guy from Borneo. Wow. <laughs> I love that. I'd love to. Do you, do you do a good love song dedication impersonation? <laughs> oh, man, I don't. I wish I was there. <laughs> I didn't expect to be talking about this. <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh, but, but yeah, like, so, so I feel like I was immersed in the theatre from a young age, but, um, yeah, coming to it now, it's kind of, it is strange because I'm, I'm not trained, so it feels like th- that's why it's really great to have you know, the production team and a director and everything sort of allowing you to hit, you know, teaching you to hit your spots and what brings the maximum impact. Because mm. I try to do that with my words, like pick them off very carefully like an assassin might. And you can do that with, with, with yeah, with the lights and, and um, with the blocking and everything. But, I mean, I'm still, yeah, I'm obviously just feeling my way through it. Yeah. Is it, can you talk to the nature of art and what it does for you personally? I know what it does for the audience is important, mm. but... What does it do for your, you know, mental health and spirituality? Oh, that's, yeah, I mean, it's a funny one because when I come on shows like this, I I would like to present a positive front to it and a positive face and hopefully uplift other people because, like, in Malay culture, a storyteller, like, the traditional name for a storyteller is penglipur lara and it means a, a dispeller of worries or a reliever of sorrows. And so that's your own sorrows, but hopefully the audience's as well, you know. But the more I get into it, I start to think that art can diminish you and erode your sense of selfhood and self-esteem and mental health as much as it can fulfil you, you know, it's because it, it's a dangerous place. If you're dwelling in these dark places, if you're scratching at the scabs and, and pushing into the pain then that's pretty fraught, you know, mm. because you can you can get lost in it. And so it's no coincidence that like musicians die younger and artists die like 15 years younger than the rest of the population and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's both. It's a, like, it's a beautiful destroyer in that way. Because so much of what you do is about words and conversation, are you a really self-conscious conversationalist when you're not on stage? Like the way that you, you know how powerful words can be. Mm. So does it make you conscious of just trying to have everyday conversations with people? Does that change the way that you think about them? Yeah, I mean, I find it really, really frustrating because I feel like in situations like this or on stage, I can, or or on the page, I can be 
so articulate. Yeah. But then I find with my friends or girlfriends or <laughs> when I'm trying to express myself, I'm so clumsy and clunky and really? I can't seem to find the right words and I'm left silent and I, I don't know what... Yeah, it's, it's really difficult. Oh. And so... That must be frustrating for them. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Just come hey, and see the show, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, when, you, when you finish a show, it's a one-man show, and so you do all the all the talking for an hour. How much do you not want to speak afterwards? Well, no, I mean you want to connect with people, but yeah, I mean I would like preferably I would like to just go off for an hour and a half and just be silent yeah. by myself um, because. That energy release, that energy dump is so intense because you sort of almost don't realise that it's crept up on you and then suddenly you're like, wow, I've just yeah. had to be so focused. Because part of the joy of it is like you're one person getting 300 different people from all these various walks of life mm. onto the same page and then you're all lifting up together. But then suddenly, yeah, you get to the end of it and you're just like, oh, my God, that I'm really done. took oh, it out of me. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a favourite word or flurry of words or part of the show that you look forward to? Two every night? Oh, um, yeah, there's this little bit... Oh, no, it's giving away too much. Oh. oh, well, there's this line, though. I'll give you a line. <laughs> Great. Where I talk about, you know, moss-rosetted headstones, frangipani trees and white petals on the ground like pieces of broken porcelain. And I think it's like one That's of my favourite yeah. things. And that it's I... not often you get to say frangipani on stage. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Also, I feel like whenever you're stuck in conversation, you could just drop that in and people would go... Yeah, OK. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind next time I've lost for, lost then for words with my mate. You're just going to yell, We get it, all right, frangipani. Since, since Ali died, he's on an Arts Centre Fairfax studio tonight. Watch mm-hmm. uh, Omar push through the pain tonight until Saturday. And go to artscentermelbourne.com.au for more details. Omar Musa, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. It's the best part of the day. Dr. Jen is here for Weird Science. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And it is, isn't it? It is. Morning. Morning being the, the uh, most important word there. We're talking about early birds. Now, I, I was thinking about you guys. Are you all naturally early morning people or is this job just absolute hell on earth? Not naturally. No. What I think hell, I mate? What are you doing? I'm dying slowly on air. No, I, no, not naturally. I'm, I'm, I'm not significantly either way, but I'm okay. definitely not naturally a person who wants to be up early in the morning. Mm, shame. I think I've embraced <laughs> it. I think I, I think I am. That sounds like you, Jess. Mm. I figure you embrace most things in life. Yeah. I think Daniel's still working it Daniel. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no comment. I'm still sorting it. No, I'm, I think I was historically a night owl, but maybe I just enjoyed sleeping in. Yeah, I mean, it does change as we age. Most babies are, you know, notoriously early birds. We all know stories of, you know, babies waking up at ridiculous times and then our natural waking time tends to sort of shift back and back to the very well-popularised uh, idea that teenagers like to stay up until, you know, some ridiculous hour and then sleep in some terrible late hour and how bad school hours are. Mm. But then it does tend to shift again as we get a bit older. But the the um, the fact is that it's, it is has been very clearly scientifically 
shown that there are people who are much happier waking really early in the morning and going to bed early and other people at the other end of the day. So the whole early bird night owl thing is, you know, is actually true. And the evolutionary theory behind it, which I really love, is if you imagine a tribe of people it was a real advantage within that group of people to have, you know, some members who would be at the top of their game and wide awake at any time to protect everybody else. So you needed Mm. the night owls who could, you know, stand guard at the entrance to the cave until the wee hours, but then you needed people to wake up really early Mm. to take over the shift Mm. when those people wanted to go to bed. I just think that's a lovely Yeah. (laughs) So would that mean that it's 50-50 in terms of benefits? Because when you read about high achievers, it's always about getting up early and... Well, it's a really good question. There's no doubt that there is evidence to say that being an early bird is somehow a good thing, but it's nothing, you know, you're not a night owl because you're lazy. It's, you know, we all have what's called a chronotype, which is our natural natural waking and sleeping time, and that's synced with the 24-hour clock. So... You know, people have different preferences and it's got nothing to do with laziness. It's just to do with what your body feels better doing. But certainly there's evidence to say that morning people are... There's a whole lot of things. They're more conscientious. They do better at school. They're more cooperative. They tend to be happier. But then night owls tend to be more creative, better risk takers. I mean, I think there's really kind of pretty clear stereotypes that people get caught up in, which aren't necessarily right. But I guess the problem is that there are definitely health concerns that are associated with being a night owl so we've got evidence that people who are night owls tend to eat more erratically eat more unhealthy food end up with greater risk of diabetes and heart disease you know there there is definitely evidence that people who are night owls suffer but the argument is that for a large reason that's because of the world they're forced to live in you know if your natural time is to go to bed at 2am and get up at 10am and you find it really hard to fall asleep before 2am but in fact you have to be up at 6.30 every day for work, (laughs) you end up getting progressively more and more sleep deprived. So that's been called social jet lag. So so jet lag, as we all think of it normally, is your body Mm. perceiving one time and the place you've just flown into having a different time. Social jet lag is where the world makes you succumb to a schedule that doesn't actually suit your body (laughs) clock. How does that relate then? Daniel's feeling that (laughs) right. It's good to have a word for it. Welcome to social jet lag. How does that relate to um, our inbuilt need for sleep? Because I know we've talked before about people who only need four hours sleep. We know that a lot of presidents and prime ministers can exist off four hours. I see for me, for example, I don't feel like I necessarily am a night owl or an early bird. Yeah. I just think I need, aren't. I think I just need eight hours sleep. Yep. And so that's more my thing. So are those two things interrelated or are they separate? Well, the differences between, um, you know, all of this, all of these ideas of things that are less healthy about being a night owl, that's completely irrespective of how many hours of sleep you get. Oh, really? And irrespective of the quality of sleep that you get. Oh. So you needing eight or seven or ten hours of sleep or whatever it is, um, it's... It's, it's not that uncommon to say, look, I'm, I'm not a particular early bird or a particular night owl, I just need my sleep. But irrespective of getting enough sleep, some people are just really natural early risers and some people aren't. Mm. So there was a big study that came out last year of nearly 700,000 people. So they analysed the genome, so the whole genetic code of nearly 700,000 people and looked at how that related to their preferred kind of sleep patterns. And they found 350-something areas of the genome that were linked to being an early riser. So this suggests that there's really strong genetic 
um, genetic processes involved here. Now, they did come out and say that it didn't account for everything because the difference between the people with all of these early riser genes, if mm. you like, and the people who didn't have them was only about 25 minutes. So obviously it's habit and environment and stuff, but it's in the genes. And the thing I found really interesting was that it wasn't just hormone levels and other things, but it was also the genes that were involved in the um, retinal cells in our eyes. So the cells that are actually collecting information about how light it is and sending those signals to the brain, they are slightly genetically different in people who tend to wake up earlier, mm. which yeah. I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. How do you know when to say, well, you know, I, this is learned behaviour, I can change it, versus going, well, it's genetic, why bother, I'm a night owl? Well, I think the genetic thing is interesting because it shows that there's definitely genetics involved, but it's not the whole story. In terms of negative stuff about being a night owl, that massive study of 700,000 people also found strong correlations between being a night owl and having mental health um, conditions. So you're more likely to suffer depression and schizophrenia Mm. if you're a night owl. So I guess it just depends on whether it's affecting your life. Yeah. And, and is that, that doesn't matter whether that night owl is waking up for work. That person could be doing shift work, for example, totally. as a night owl and they'd yep. still be more predisposed yep. to these yep. things. Oh, yep. that's exactly. fascinating. Does There's it, another – sorry, Jess, I'll just tell you mm. another little bit of interesting genetic stuff. You guys know I'm a crazy early bird. People yes. think I'm a loony. I wake up at a fairly ungodly hour without an alarm. But I found a study that was only published last week where they found that's also genetic. Oh, so wow. one in 300 people and I reckon I'm one of them without any genetic testing I'm just self-diagnosing here have a condition called advanced sleep phase where you wake up naturally between 3 and 5 a.m feeling tip-top and they reckon that it runs in families and my dad is the same my whole childhood I remember my dad was always up doing stuff at about four o'clock so I've self-diagnosed I have advanced sleep phase Mm. the next time I have to say to me why on earth did you get up at three o'clock this morning I'm like I have advanced sleep phase (laughs) it's just in my genes I can't control it because you guys have seen me in the morning right like I'm happy yeah we're looking at you right no coffee no coffee actually that's the other thing I need to tell you so night owls also drink more coffee are more likely to be smokers drink more alcohol you know mm. there's all these things but the yes. but the there was a study that was just recently published that basically says if you want to change you can so you don't have to change but if you're finding the social jet lag is costing you your well-being and happiness basically they had a group of um, young adults so I don't know what that was defined as I think kind of early 20s who their natural sleep time was to go to bed at 3 a.m and wow. get up at 10.30 in the morning. Jesus. And they made them stick to a pretty strict routine. They said, you've got to get up three hours earlier than normal. You've got to not have any caffeine after 3 p.m. You've got to have lots of outdoor light in the morning. You've got to get some exercise in the morning. You've got to have um, breakfast as soon as you wake up. You're not allowed to sleep in on weekends. So this really strict thing. They didn't expect any of them to stick to it, but they all did. And within a month, they'd shifted their wake sleep times by three hours. And their depression rates, their stress rates, their anxiety rates had all changed. And the researchers said that's why we think they stuck to this ridiculous rate regime we set out for them because they started feeling better. Mm. <laughs> does, it, does it matter what city you live in? Has any research been done into that? Like, I mean, I'm just thinking of like New York, the city that never sleeps. Yep. And if you're in a city, like, um, will that combat things like, um, like this... Um, 
uh, social jet lag thing. Like if if you're up at two o'clock and there are things that you can do, like yep. there might be a gym that's open or um, nice meals to eat. Has any research been done into that? I don't know about research, but it would totally make sense that if your lifestyle, if your natural night owl lifestyle suits the place you live mm. and you don't, you know, you're a digital nomad who can work any time, why would you change your habits? Mm. I mean, I think the main thing about cities is artificial light. So there's been some really interesting studies where they take people out of cities, take them camping in the mountains for a week. They're not allowed any artificial light, not even torches. All they get is campfire. And within a week, their body clocks reset that they fall asleep at dusk and they wake up at dawn. Mm. A week. Wow. That's really and it's, fast. It's, yeah. It makes sense, doesn't it, that the night owl would consume bad stuff because you don't wake up and want to <laughs> tray of biscuits. But maybe if it's 11 o'clock at night that you're more prone to do that. Well, uh, thank you. We'll let you get back on with the day since you've been up so early. <laughs> Mornings are so good. Guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Jen. Three triple R. I got a call from my um, my sister yesterday, my younger sister, and um, she said, uh, your niece wants to speak to you. Um, I went, you put her on, let's go. And I said, hello. And she said, I'm going on school camp tomorrow. Ooh. I'm like, this is exciting. I'm like, yes. Roughly camp. how old, what kind of age group? She's, uh, I think she's 12. We asked roughly. <laughs> <laughs> Around maybe between... Um, <laughs> Between 10 and 16. I didn't, I didn't want to put you on the spot in case you didn't know her exact yeah, name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. sorry, age, oh, whatever I think, name. Yeah, Claudia. Um, so anyway, Claudia gets on the phone and, and she's like, I'm going on school camp tomorrow. She's a very selfish young woman. I, I love it. And um, she says, uh, oh, also the other thing she gets, also later on in the year that we're having a talent show and obviously everyone's going to be singing, but I thought I would do some stand-up comedy. It's like, Wow. Hot tips galore, right? Gave her all my tips. But I don't know why she needed to tell me she was going on school camp. Unless you're used to having – there is a talent show happening on the school camp. There often is at school camps. Yeah, yeah. isn't there? I was a big fan. I'm, school camp, though, that was my time to shine. I loved a school camp. Did you? Yeah, absolutely. What, what, how were you shining specifically? Well, there was nothing to do. Oh. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it was, right. you weren't in class yeah. and there was activities and I was like, I'm bang up for an activity. I'll and you're do a good it. girl guide so you'd be able to do things. Yeah, I knew how to start a fire, no problem. <laughs> I could chop wood, no worries. They didn't let me do that But it turns into camp. a Lord of the Flies little scenario with the, politics and... I think I play a good social game. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I've been watching too much Survivor. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I don't think that's that was the key in school camp, you know. I was, um, you know... It was fun. I thought I was fun to be around and mm. get involved sure. and, and do things. Well, what know? about your Lord of the Flies experiences? Mm. Oh well, I mean, I remember Poo Wong. We went to Poo Wong, oh, and you, yep. but oh, it, it, tw- twenty-four hours. I think you run out of things to do. And I remember a teacher. We schle- <laughs> we were very young. We slept to the abattoir. Oh my oh, goodness! Jesus! <laughs> I think it was decided at the door that. This was not for young people's eyes. Wow! Yeah. It took them to get all the way to the door of the abattoir <laughs> yeah. to make that decision. Yeah, but it's also you know the the dishwashers on a school camp are always oh, so yeah. powerful and extraordinary. Yes. I can't. Why, why can't we have this in houses? Oh yeah, those big in, those yeah. big industrial yeah, ones. Yeah, and it's like bam, <laughs> and it comes out perfect. Yeah. I'm like. 
It's and so you, hot, you can barely touch the plates. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So And then it dries. And, Did you have, like, grown-up school kids? Like, you, you, oh, the, high, the high school ones were the ones where everything got a bit gnarly in my memory. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, for me, primary school would, loved it. We went to um, a place called Barambula. Went there, and I just remember they taught us how to Too long, Barambula. <laughs> I know. Right. Um, but, yeah, high school, uh, year 11 and 12 drama camp. Oh, what a... Drama that would have been so good. I set my head on fire at, at drama camp once. Was part of a project. Is this when you were fire breathing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I would right. have told you this story before, but strap in. Here we go again, right? Um, but it was yeah. Drama camp was so much fun. It was you know obviously um, highly emotional, creative <laughs> yeah. teenagers. Because camp. That's why high school camps were so funny oh. as it was because it was just all this drama yeah. and mm. tension and intensity, and then take that the, yeah. literally the drama class uh yeah which is why um there was another reason for me to shine i was very emotional <laughs> yeah. and i was very, i loved talking about my emotions you know on drama kept they'd had this thing where um at, on the last night everyone would sit in a circle and then you'd pass a candle around <laughs> and talk about your emotions it's I loved it. So good. It was, you know, before coming to drama camp, I was really sad. Now I'm really happy and I love you all. All of that, you know. But drama camp, there was one night where um, some others that knew how to do fire stick twirling and stuff. And yeah. so, and <laughs> truly it was their time to shine, wasn't it? Yes. And then someone, and I said, oh, how do you do fibre? And they go, yeah, you just take a swig of kerosene and spit oh, it out. And I'm on. like, well, I'm giving that a go. Yeah. <laughs> so I did. Oh, my God. So I did. And and it was just, you know, we were just out in this field at night and, mm. you know, everyone's standing around. It's people fly through trailer and I went, guys, check this out. And took a swig of kerosene and then, you know, spat it out. Because they said, it's you can't just spit it out. You've got to, you know, spray it, yeah. you know, like that. Okay. But Please you don't do that now. You understand what <laughs> yes. I mean there? Yeah. You know, so... You know, yeah, everybody knows you've got to spray kerosene out of your mouth. Yeah. Everybody knows. So <laughs> I did that. And then I remember at the, at the time, like, you know, big fireball. I went, oh, that's cool. Right. But also at the same time, I remember thinking, geez, that's hot. Oh. Um, but also going, yeah, fair enough. There's a, there's a massive fireball right in front of your oh. face. And then, uh, and then it kind of it goes out as quickly as it's there, um, and then um, <laughs> so there's I kind of it went out, and I expected people to go, "Whoa, yeah, how cool was that?" But there was just stunned silence from everybody, <laughs> and then just like one of the teachers just with a bucket in his hand, like on his just running towards me, <laughs> and then he, you know, he's looked at me and kind of. Just, just relieved and, and dropped the bucket, and he's just like, "Oh my goodness!" And then someone else just, you just hear the back of him, the back of the crowd, you just, sit, <clears throat> and then someone yells out, "Your whole head was on fire!" <laughs> oh god! So it turns out I got to, as well as the spraying, you've got to um, check the wind. That's an important factor when mm. you're making did fireballs. You have, did, you, is, did you have short hair at the time, or is this pre-short hair? It was pre-short hair. Uh, so, yeah, I went to I went to camp uh, with long hair and came, came home yeah. with short hair. Because it just, yeah, it set my, it just, but it just kind of went up and over and just, you know, I just had singed eyebrows and, and hair. Good and material then, for story time with the candle. Yes. Provided you don't light it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, pr- I'm probably said something about that when I was there. But mm. Oh, my God. I remember going, you know, camp and having to go to a meeting to pick the person you were in the tent with. 
Oh, really? And I was late for the meeting. So I was, it was me and another girl who I, I didn't know. Oh. And she was lovely, but yeah, but you not what I was expecting. You what, Why did she fart? Or? No, she just wasn't. I just didn't know her. And in year nine, that's kind of the heart. Yeah, everything's you, about the politics of yeah. friendships at that mm, stage. Yeah. And so she oh, she was the person who's, who's left without someone. And that's and, you, and, and it ended up being me. But she was wonderful. She, she ended up being the best person to share a tent with. She brought all these. She'd get to nighttime and she'd be like, look what I brought and would pull out bags and bags of lollies and I was like oh this is the greatest thing that's ever happened wow. to me but then the bad girls came and got me one night and were like you gotta leave stop eating lollies we're gonna go and smoke a ciggy and we're in the bush <laughs> and I was like oh I don't think we should do that it's like all right we're gonna wear our whistles around our necks because before we'd gone into the bush for this camp they'd given us all the survival techniques so if you got lost so we all had whistles we had to wear around our necks <laughs> And um, they told us how to survive in the freezing cold, although it was like 40-degree weather. And I was like, I don't think we should be smoking a cigarette in 40... You know, it's probably not allowed in the bush. And anyway, I went with them because I... That's what I would do. And this is the rock crew. This is not the rock crew. But uh, we snuck out and we, we, we were like, oh, we'll just pretend we're going to the toilet. So we took the toilet. There was a bucket that you take to go and dig a hole to go to the toilet. Oh, wow. Anyway, within about three minutes, we were lost <gasps> and couldn't find it. And then, so we were like, well, we'll have a cigarette anyway. And then, which we did. And then we we're like, oh, we're going to have to try and find our way back to camp. Did you, how many of you were there? And three. How many, and just one cigarette. Yeah, we just had one. I don't even around. know why we did it. I, I, I was just, I was just, a sheep. I was just going along with it. Mm, Everyone else was telling yeah. me to do. Clearly, I shouldn't yeah. have gone out in the first place. And I remember we were. It, it, there's this weird thing going through your heads as a teenager, going, "How long until you absolutely panic?" So at first it was kind of funny, and we had the cigarette anyway. Mm. Then it became clear we couldn't find our way back to camp. Then we started talking about the different survival methods we'd learned. One of which was digging a hole and lying on top of each other oh, yeah. to keep oh, your body yeah. warm. <laughs> And it got to that point, then we just had to all, then, but then we just freaked out. Then we just were all blowing out our whistles. And it was just like the camp lit up and they all had to come and find us. And there we were. Boy. And we were honestly, I reckon 15 minutes, 15 metres away from the campsite. Not oh, even not damn. even that. But it was just us. And then the teacher came up and she's like, why'd you, why'd you all go to the toilet together in the middle of the night? And we said, oh, you know, we're a bit scared. And she's like, oh, yeah. What do you smell like? I can smoke? smell the cigarette girls. <laughs> Three triple R. Alicia sometimes is a writer, poet, TEDx talker, and former breakfaster <laughs> whose work has appeared in Best Australian Poems, Meandrian, Overland, Australian Book Review, the list goes on. She's behind the show Particle Wave at Melbourne Planetarium Science Works for National Science Weeks, and she joins us now to tell us all about it. Alicia, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, it's good to be here, and just on the eve of Radiothon, so I can yes. see you all sort of, you're buzzing, yeah. you're ready, you're certain, pumped. I'm bristling. <laughs> um, can you uh, can you and I want to? I'll get tips about radio, Radiothon from you off air. <laughs> but can you take us on the ride of Particle Wave? Yeah, sure. Look, I've always loved combining poetry and science and art and science together. And I love a planetarium. I know, Sarah, you were saying you sort of you go to planetariums, you just lie back, you look above, you're immersed. It's 360. It's a dome. It's you know they they tell you about the stars and the moon and the mm. galaxies, and you're just taking on this journey. And I loved it as a canvas for creating a story so I thought why not a show in the planetarium with lots of artists poets writers musicians visual artists and talk about gravitational waves now why gravitational yes. waves only your brain yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would go there. 
Well, it t- in a- the good thing, by the way, about uh, talk interviewing a form of breakfast is you just ask yourself your own question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> gravitational waves in 2016, they announced the discovery of gravitational waves. And what are gravitational waves? Um, when two massive objects like black holes or neutron stars collide, you know, m- miles away, mm-hmm. um, they give off a ripple that sort of um, ripples in the fabric of space-time. So this, what's happening right now is a gravitational wave could be going through us and it's so completely, absolutely minuscule. It's stretching us and squeezing us, but it's so tiny we can't even detect it. And Einstein predicted it in uh, 1915 and said these things will happen, but in his lifetime, of course, and many lifetimes to come, we couldn't predict it. But uh, in the States, they built two detectors uh, called LIGO, Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatories, and they detected these amazing ripples. And it was only a few days after they turned it on, so they thought for a start that it was a joke. It was perhaps not the right data. It was, um, you know, they're just so excited about this discovery that they weren't quite sure. But then there was other observations of it, and they found out that these gravitational waves existed. So I thought it'd be a great story to let people know about and do it in a poetic way. So I want you to go to the planetarium, lie back, just let it wash over you. Mm. And we've taken this in a creative way as well. And you've been doing this show for a fair bit? It was. It launched at the Melbourne International Arts Festival in October. Uh, we're putting it on now during National Science Week. We're going to take it overseas uh, for New Scientists Live in London, which will be great in October. So it, it's been in Adelaide. Love Adelaide. Yeah. It's a cute <laughs> I love Adelaide. Oh, I love Adelaide. Yeah, and I'm off to Wollongong. I'm off to the gong tonight. I love the gong. Yeah, they have a beautiful <laughs> planetarium. And I was just saying to you off air that Sydney don't have one as you, at this Which is bananas. Moment. It's bananas, a big town. It's a good planetarium. Shocking. Yeah. But Science Work have, uh, has an amazing one out in Spotswood. They have incredible shows and they have housed us. And, huh. um, yeah. And what have you been learning about how science and art communicate with each other? Yeah, that's a great question. I think they're sort of in some ways so similar about language because they both, you know, compute, guess, test, uh, observe. Um, they both uh, use, depend on language. They depend on language. Mm. And a science communicator, they already use vivid uh, language in their storytelling. And I think poets, we're full of hyperbole. We <laughs> say we, we say something's amazing uh, and, and say it in 50 words when scientists <laughs> would say it in two. Uh, but we've got great scientists like Alan Duffy, uh, Katie Mack, Ling Sun, Kendall Ackley, sort of explain the actual gravitational waves. There's no test at the end. Right. <laughs> I can see your face. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so the, uh, the, the artists take it in a scientific way, uh, in a creative way, the scientific stuff. So, yeah, it's a beautiful show and Andrew Watson uh, is playing live. So he's playing, um, you know, violin and his array of beautiful music. Um, he did a lot of uh, visuals for the show, but there's other great artists, so many artists involved. I love, I just love the bringing of these two worlds together because my whole life I was told at school you're either science or you're art. Yes. You can't be both. How did your brain become both, Alicia? Well, well, <laughs> well, at high school I was discouraged from doing science and I thought that I could only choose the path of 
uh, art, but I didn't realise that the streams didn't have to be separated forever. So I've kind of brought them back just out of absolute compulsion. I can't help myself. Like, I love my footy. Yes. Love footy. <laughs> Same, Love mate. my sports. Yeah, you go. Go Tigers. <laughs> um, by Essendon. Yes. It? Yeah, well done. And you, Dan? Tigers. Oh, Tigers. Yeah. Two Tigers. Mm. Um, yeah, but he doesn't, get much, he doesn't get much space on the show. <laughs> about the Tigers, unfortunately. No, no. <laughs> uh, go Hawks. And um, so I do love that, but the science keeps calling out to me, and uh, I just love do it, performing in different spaces. Is there a is there a concept in science beyond particle waves that you've grasped in the in your immersion in this world? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I mean, I'm absolutely my favourite things to have on my bedside table: quantum physics, um, just ast- astronomy, astrology. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, astronomy and cosmology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alan Duffy, who's a part of this show, um, he's one of these dreamboat dishy uh, astrophysicists. He <laughs> was in the news because he... Do you like him? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he was, he was uh, leading an experiment to detect dark matter. Yes. And, and then what happened? Oh, well, they haven't discovered it yet. That's one of the big questions left unsolved. What is dark matter? And um, there's so many different candidates for dark matter, but mm-hmm. basically on the most basic, basic level, and every scientist is going to call you up and say, no, that's not quite right. But dark energy is something that they have detected that is sort of pulling the universe apart. And dark matter in some ways, and I'm being completely basic here, is yeah. keep, keeping it together. They know from indirect detection that it exists, but they haven't directly detected it. So... It, uh, what is it? Mm. it? What is it? Is it a particle? Is it something else? Yeah, it's, is that is that kind of the most exciting thing? If you kind of if you could be alive for one space discovery to come, is that the most exciting one for you, or is there something yeah. else? No, I think dark matter would be would be pretty amazing, and, and there's so many. Yeah, so Alan Duffy's team at Swinburne, um, they're looking at dark matter and, uh, yeah, good luck to them. And they can't can't find it yet, but in the process of looking for it, they think it will make it easier to detect gold in, uh, in the Earth. Yeah, well, do you know that the neutron stars, um, when they collide, they produce platinum and gold, and that's where it came from. So it hasn't even. Do you realise that thing on oh. your on your neck on your on your ring has come from outer space? I just love it. Yes. How exciting! Wow. Oh, what a, <laughs> <laughs> what a ring! Yeah, there's a, that's a lot of space in there. <laughs> that's a galaxy. <laughs> Oh, my God. Uh, so, Alicia Sometimes, writer, director and producer of Particle Wave. It's taking place this Saturday, August 17 at Melbourne Planetarium Science Works. And you can go to particle-wave.com for more details. But I believe we have something special. Yeah, just because on the eve of Radiothon, what you need is an unscheduled giveaway. <laughs> But, and I'm going to take the calls. I'm going to go in the in the green room and take the calls. But, yeah, if you'd like to come along uh, this Saturday at 9pm to ScienceWorks in Spotswood uh, and you're a Triple R subscriber and you want to give us a call on 9388 1027. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't even look. Um, yeah, we'd, I'd love to give you a double pass and I'll take your calls. Thanks so much. Uh, Break fasters. Good luck tomorrow. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's really nice having you here today yeah. before we start. Yeah. yeah. Good vibe. It's, it's like you're left. On the yeah. phone. 6 a.m. <laughs> Cheers, Leisha. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Oh, 
boy, this is exciting. Uh, we have a special treat. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Henry Waggins, musician, Melbourne giant, former arts segment presenter on Breakfasters. And uh, one Bit of offended. What'd you call me? You were great. And one of, uh, one of 100, Melbourne's, you were named one of, uh, what, Melbourne's 100 most influential people, uh, which is impressive. Ooh. I am not even... Why are you? Uh, I was. What are you, it was oh, what what are you like about By the age, what I like about that list... That happened back in 2009 is they didn't say whether I was a good or a bad influence <laughs> on Melbourne. They didn't specify, but I didn't care at the time, you know, and I still yeah, don't, right. to Take be honest you with you. Get. Yeah, I know. I, I have it. some influence <laughs> on the uptake of, you know, button down gingham shirts, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that I might certainly be think it. you have an influence on people subscribing. Yes, I do. And I'm, um, you know, really excited to be here and, and, you know, be so passionate about a station that I absolutely adore. And I was just trying to think, I do come in here every year and I, I don't say that begrudgingly. I say that, <laughs> I say that with absolute passion and force and I'm so, 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 so happy to be here. But I was just thinking, I tell the same bloody story that, you know, yeah, I cut and pasted it. We want to hear it. It's tradition. It's, yeah. tell, tell the people the yearly story. <laughs> Some people are new listeners. They haven't heard yeah. it yet. Yeah. There are sort of, there are two that I call on. One is I cut and pasted my EP and I pigeonholed everyone back in the late 90s and Gary Seven discovered it and put me on an interview and that sort of the whole um, snowball that started my musical career and that can still happen at Triple R where you make and home make a, a, a tape which is what I did and, and, and that start. So that's, that's my first go to, mm, that's mm. done checked off the list the second the one and then the uh yeah that's right and then uh the obstacle You're like a triple x-men character <laughs> that's it and yeah uh, the second is uh big z uh when uh tony biggs had his leg injury um and i was doing the art segment i'd often bring my dog peeps in the pug cross poodle and peeps freaked out at Bigsy's gait when he was limping with his uh, cast on yeah. and just uh, bit Bigsy when he, <laughs> he, uh, as he was walking in to take over um, yeah and Bigsy didn't want to be bit that morning <laughs> and it was it was a you know true um, triple R experience if uh, so you know apology once again to Bigsy <laughs> I can never say sorry enough um, did he draw blood though wasn't uh, that bad. I, d- I, you know, there was uh, so much plaster and the socks were thick. I think he was okay. I think he was being, you know, he was playing it up a little bit, to yeah. be honest. And how, how, how deeply can a half pug, half poodle really bite you? Yeah. You know, ultimately, they don't have the genetic fortitude to actually pierce the skin, in my opinion. <laughs> but I, um, but what I did want to say, what I, as I was driving here in the car, what I did want to... It's like, what new, what, what's something new I can offer? And something that continues to affect my life every day is this amazing community of people. And as someone who does crap around all the time, not literally, you know, figuratively... You know, I, I have a... You know, if you are a band or if you're a small business owner or playing any gig or doing any art of any kind, even thinking about doing it, the idea that Triple R is a community of open-minded, intelligent, dynamic, interesting people that can support 
your event or mm. your thing and you can kind of latch into it to help get that support for your little idea bubbling in your mind is incredible mm. and the opportunity to have that if you just have this little dream or a pipe dream or it's a reality for you and you've got this community of support is absolutely incredible and worthy of your subscription that's what I truly wanted That's to say. That's gorgeous. That was a good. That was good. S- screw Bigsy's bike. I, I think this is officially going to be the last year I say Pete's bike. No bite. more bite. R.I.P. Bigsy's bite. Um, if you believe in the words that Henry Wiggins just spoke so passionately, give us a call nine three double eight one zero two seven or jump online at rrr.org.au to subscribe. Uh, he might be able to read out your name, like he's going to sure. read out the name of many. Good subscribers right now. Brendan Mann of Reservoir is renewing his subscription to the station and offers his thanks to Triple R. Troy Ma of West Footscray is renewing as well to respect the rock. Marty Brown from Rosebud, a new subscriber to the station, and says, Fuck ya. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, <laughs> not that I like to make it a peninsula off, but that is the first of the peninsulas to subscribe. So oh, yeah. Morning, Mornington's got in before the Bellarine. I'm just putting it out there, Bellarine. Uh, we haven't heard from you this morning. Wow, the rival of the spits. Yeah. The mel- <laughs> um, that's so good. I, You know, I'm, um, I'm not going to... Uh, Take sides. Well, can I, can I just get, <laughs> we're about to go two for zero because uh, small business, you were talking about small yes. businesses getting involved. Uh, Smell the Cheese, based in Blair Gary. Oh, hey. yeah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. So many things to love about that. Subscribing to Breakfasters. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I've got Megan Papworth of Chelsea renewing uh, to the breakfast. As Triple R has become the lighthouse in the dark times of conservative radio. Keep going, you amazing people. And I think lighthouse latches into the peninsula theme as well. Oh, yes. In some sort of way. Zoe Watt from Karen is renewing plus a high rolling $10 donation uh, to this program. I love the stories that Geraldine tells. And happy first radiothon, Daniel. Oh, Wow. Isn't that nice? That's Ian, gorgeous. Ian Price of Cranbourne's renewing uh, to, to Breakfasters. It doesn't seem a year since since the Tune Lord. Thanks for all the great radio. Oh. Keep oh, up the great yeah. work. I'm Tune Lord. Thanks for reminding <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got a nickname last year. Yeah. I'd, I'd like one this year. That'd be nice. Yeah. It's uh, oh, and the last bit of the message is please read this out between seven twenty and seven fifty, oh, uh, which no. we completely we'll, blew. We'll <laughs> Three minutes. Three minutes. Away. Oh, no. We'll read it out again. Um, uh, go ahead, Jess. Michael Davis from Thompson uh, to break in and entering. Keep it up. You're awesome. Thank you. So are you. Lachlan McQuaid from Belgrave to respect the rock. And James Fothingham from Heathmont to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thank you also to Susie Pridell from North Dandenong. Uh, new subscriber to the station and donating $60 as well. Says, every time I turn on the radio in the morning, it is a relief. A relief. Oh, Oh, good luck with your life. It's like, oh. No, but maybe it's just, oh, the radio's working. (laughs) (laughs) What a relief. (laughs) Thank you, Susie. Uh, Lee Rosalind from Janjuk, uh, new subscriber to Get Down. And uh, Maria McLavity from Flemington is a new subscriber to The Cave. And, well, fancy this. Who do we have here? Henry Waggins from Carlton. Oh, hey, <laughs> I'm here. 
returned to the station. Thank you, Henry. Thank My you pleasure. so much. Uh, Amanda Burton from Dandenong North, renewing the breakfast. This is thanks to all the volunteers, everyone at the station. Thanks to Triple R for making the Melbourne music scene what it is. Uh, ben Henschel from Mentone, renewing to JVG Radio Method. And its description is specifically for Ian and his poetry on Sundays with the JVG show. Love it. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Jihu from East Geelong. I love Geelong. Uh, new to the breakfasters. Thanks for your laughter every morning. Makes my commute something to look forward to. Thank you, John. Malcolm Herbert from Brunswick East, renewing to the good, the dub and the global. Shout out to old shows and then he lists a bunch of them um, and there's so many I can't go through them all but they include Against the Arctic Beats Eclectic uh, Chicken Mary Delivery Hell's a Pop and Kinky Afro so many more what a oh my god what when about you, the download or Round and Round uh, no, no don't, don't make the, the list why would you ever mention that <laughs> Deborah Bain from Heidelberg renewing with a donation of fifteen bucks to Maps and Nat Chippy Japanese Hearts from Japanese Heart Software uh, in Ivanhoe is a new uh, band subscription to the Breakfasters. So thanks, Breakfasters. Love the tune. Keep up the great work in the morning, my friends. Yeah, is that you're it? my friend. That's that's all the names. Well, I've got. no, all right. Uh, Lauren Young from Coburg, <laughs> uh, renewing to the breakfast, says, says thanks for helping out with early morning baby madness this year. I go over afterwards and change the nappies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Lauren. Uh, Danelle Barra from Preston, a new subscriber to the breakfasts, and can you do a kissy noise? Yep, that's. Can uh, you? Uh, mine is a little bit too... Creepy. Let's hear it. Oh, creepy. Settle down. Okay. No. <laughs> it's, it's maybe just a touch intimate. Oh, no, I really no, want to hear it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll try and not... Uh, oh, my God, that was... It was quite... Yeah, 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 exactly. And I don't want to, you know. <laughs> maybe the speed. Something like that. If I could do it faster. The softness yeah, in the speed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's a powerful combination. If you're wearing headphones, Ratio. it's very bright. Uh, and to Kim Elliott from Glen Waverley, a new subscriber to Out on the Patio. Cool. Yes, I'm um, from Glen Waverley. That's my home suburb. Oh, cool. uh, represent. It's 7.20. Does that mean you could go back to one oh, particular Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> We've uh, dribbled on that long. Ian Price of Cranbourne, uh, you have renewed and uh, successfully requested your renewal read, read out between 7.20 and 7.50. It is 7.20 and 57 seconds. <laughs> Snuck it in. Well, maybe Thanks, Ian. If, is Peeps still with us? Oh, Peeps is still with okay. us, 11 years old, and, and kind of, as the years go by, looking more and more like Tony <laughs> um, He's They're blending into one. They're both very handsome, uh, austere gentlemen. Well, bring him in, and uh, I'll, I'll start limping, and maybe Peeps, Peeps can get a sequel. Um, Wagons, it's been so nice. Um, I just called you Wagons. Yeah, do was, uh, it. Uh, it's been so nice having you in. Are there any final words for the Triple R Massive? Just make sure, yeah, you are, you are generous and do subscribe if you're on the fence or you have been sitting out there and not subscribing for a long time and, and just enjoying the station. Yeah, um, give. Give, that is a good one. I'm going to play a track off your new record now too. Hey. Where can people catch you launching this? We're launching it at the Croxton Hotel September 6th and, yeah, plenty of special guests and, and blood, sweat and tears everywhere. Um, it'll be a fun it'll night. It'll be fun. Wagons, thank you so, so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, everyone. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.